This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program, highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Raviputi. And I'm Ben Gideon. How's everything going? Things are great here. I had my daughter's first ice hockey game last night. I was really excited about it. I was just going to ask you about that. How'd it go? Well, she's only been playing hockey now for about two months. So, I mean, it helps. Skating ability is definitely a big part of hockey, and she's working on that. But my favorite part of the game was when she ended up caught on the ice with too, too many men on the ice because she didn't get off on the shift change. So they put her in the penalty box for two minutes. This is a girl who's not, before the game, she didn't know what offsides was. She didn't know what icing was. And she didn't know what a shift was. And now she finds herself in the penalty box. I don't think anybody explained what that was all about. So there's this great photo that someone sent me that I posted on Facebook of her sitting in the penalty box with a big grin on her face. And later after the game, she told me that the penalty box was cozy, (laughs) which I liked. So how are things in your world? Are you still torturing your children? I am. I'm trying to find different ways uh, to do it. But um, but I don't know if you've experienced this, but uh, and this may get too personal, but cell phones and teenagers, it's driving me crazy. The you know, my 13 year old, who's the one I, I really am pushing hard to to run and do other things. He just loves snapchat and it drives us nuts and so we got i got to take his phone from him every single evening make sure he gets all his homework done and i don't know if you had those experiences yeah i mean i think every every parent does and it will only get worse well thank you for the silver lining i really appreciate that so we're really excited today to have jim leventhal on the podcast jim is um, a trial lawyer from denver colorado one of the nation's top medical malpractice trial lawyers. He's had many huge verdicts, groundbreaking verdicts that have actually changed the way medicine is practiced in Colorado and across the country. He's a member of the inner circle. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So before we get into your accomplishments as a trial lawyer, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you and how you got into this business. I, I read a story about you that told me that your, your folks owned a clothing store and you kind of cut your teeth uh, selling suits and somehow transitioned from that to trying malpractice cases. How did that happen? 
Well, when I was um, young, no longer an issue, but when I was young, I decided that I wanted to go to law school. And I was working at my dad's clothing store, and my dad thought it was a good idea. I thought it would be a good business background for me working in the clothing store for the rest of my life. I went to law school, and one day while I was drifting off, um, I wasn't exactly thrilled with whatever I was listening to. I walked across the street to the courthouse, and I found a first-degree murder trial. Walked into the murder trial, and I watched the head state public defender, a guy named Raleigh Rogers, cross-examining the coroner in a murder case. And that cross-examination sent a chill through my back. Coroner actually admitted that he had lost a piece of evidence and that he lost it because the window was open when he was doing the autopsy and this hair, which was red, and both the victim and the defendant were dark-complected Hispanics, didn't have red hair, and he said the window was open, it blew away. Raleigh looked at the coroner and said, it just blew away. And he said it blew away. And then Raleigh took his hand to the window and just took it all the way across the courtroom and said it three times. And I could feel justice blowing away. It sent a chill through my back. And I sat there and I said, I can do this. This is what I want to do. And so I decided to actually practice law. And I applied with the public defender's office um, in many other places. I was turned down everywhere I applied. I had eight interviews with public defenders. I had three letters, three three times they rejected me in the last time, which was a sentinel event in my life. The letter from Raleigh Rogers said, we are rejecting you, don't apply again. So I called him and I said, Raleigh, this is Jim. I received your letter rejecting me. And he said, and? I said, and I rejected. He said, you're rejecting my rejection? I said, I am. He said, can you start Monday? And that set a time. Did, did you learn later why why would, why did you get rejected? I did learn. Did he tell you? I did learn because after I started there, I was pretty successful, which might be an understatement. And after being rocketed through county court and then juvenile court and then into district court, and by the time I was 25 years old, I was trying felonies. And being assigned to death penalty cases, I went to see Raleigh and I said, why did you reject me? And he said, because we didn't think you would care about poor people. I said, why not? He said, because of the way you were dressed. I said, Raleigh, my dad owns a men's clothing store. He goes, yeah, we heard that. I said, I want to tell you, I play better in front of juries wearing these suits than the public defenders who were in corduroy uh, sport coats and earth shoes. He said, we figured that out. I said, well, Raleigh, write this down. I just thought about this, but it might be something to remember. Don't judge a book by its cover. And he goes, got it. And he and I got to be good friends. He actually brought me in after I left the public defender's office. And I was only there for about two and a half years. I got a scholarship to NIDA, the National Institute of Trial Advocacy. And I looked like a genius there because I had tried 20 or 30 jury trials and I was up against all these East Coast lawyers who'd never seen a courtroom. And um, in the last session, um, everybody was raving about me except one federal judge who I knew. And he said, Leventhal, it's frightening to think what you could do if you actually prepared. And I looked at him, I said, Judge Kane got me. 
And so they invited me to dinner that night. The head of NIDA, a guy named Jim Kerrigan, Judge Keenan, another uh, judge, and they invited me to dinner at Kerrigan's house. And they were drinking. I wasn't. And 11 o'clock at night, they called the founder of the Colorado Trial Lawyers, and they told him to hire me. So I went to work, work with this guy. It was just the two of us. I worked with him for about two years, two and a half years, and then I decided to go out on my own. And when I did that, I also learned a valuable lesson. He said to me, when I quit, he was a little upset. He said, how many of my cases are you taking? I said, absolutely none. Not even the ones that are brought in. This is your practice norm. And he was so stunned that the next day he came in and he gave me 41 cases. 41 of the worst cases I've ever seen in my life. Everything that he didn't want to do. And fortunately, I was successful in every one of them. And so I built my practice, you know, uh, by that I never advertised. Um, it's all by, been by word of mouth. Um, I built the practice from me and the only person calling me was my mother to find out, you know, whether anybody called. I was still working on the weekends at my father's clothing store because my salary was $8,000 a month as a public defender, uh, which was a little less than our paperboy was being paid. And... Um, you know, I built this practice up by doing court appointments and everything else. And now I have a law firm that has 12 lawyers. We have about 50 people total. And we are so busy, we can barely breathe. I do cases all over the United States. Um, I was supposed to be in trial in Michigan for the last month, but the defendant, who in that case happens to be a lawyer, because um, I'm doing a legal malpractice case, and I don't do those very often, but... He got the Michigan Court of Appeals to issue an emergency stay, uh, mainly because he was cornered and had no exit plan. <laughs> so that case has been going on for 11 years. There's a story I, I saw about you where the uh, a juror said he recognized yeah, was, you early on in your career. Tell us about that. I was doing that. my first murder case, and I was sitting second chair. And the lawyer who was first chair was a brilliant, I mean brilliant trial lawyer, but he told me to pick the jury. And he did that because I like people and because I want to know about them and, and I engage them and, and, you know, it's easy for me to, to get up and talk to people. So I get, so while the jury's being picked, first the judge does it and he says it is to anybody know anybody. The defendant, the prosecutor, and this guy raised his hand and said, I know Mr. Leventhal, but I don't know where I know him from. The prosecutor gets up and asks the same question after half a day and the guy doesn't know. And when I get up, I get to him. I said, Mr. Smith, you and I know each other, don't we? He goes, we do. I said, do you know where you know me from? He goes, I have no idea. I said, well, let me ask you one question. Do you wear a 41 short? The courtroom was packed. There were artists in there. There were reporters. It was a high-profile murder case. Everybody cracked up. And the guy said, I do. You sold me the suit I'm wearing. And I said, I told you it wouldn't wrinkle. And he goes, you were right. And I got to tell you, that moment probably saved my client from the death penalty, certainly from a first-degree murder conviction. We ended up with a second-degree murder, which was good. And, and uh, you know, it, it uh, <laughs> was unique. I don't know that anybody else can say that, but that's one of the things that happened. Why do you say that uh, that moment saved your client from... Well, you know, I think that when you are in a courtroom and you see and hear the types of facts, in this case, it was a sniper film. 
and you look at the defendant and his the defendant and his lawyer probably don't look a lot different to you, you know. When I was out of law school for about four years, I spoke to the University of Denver, and my topic was representing the reprehensible. How can you do that? And I think people look at lawyers as part of the team reprehensible. And when they find out you're a human being, when they find out that you actually care and that you're there for a reason, then then it, it breaks the ice. When I was speaking and I, I said, you know, my mom on my first day being a public defender posed a crazy question to me. He said, well, what if you're asked to represent a man who's accused of a rape, murder, you know, on and on and on of a three-year-old little girl? How can you do that? And I said, mom, cut me some slack. I mean, this is my first day. I'm in traffic court. You know, and I said to, to people there, there's no way to know it until you shake the person's hand until you realize that you are the only person standing between this person and jail or worse. And at that point, you know, everything changes. And if you take every case that way, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case or whatever, and you recognize everyone is special, everyone has their own issues, and you take them seriously, then um, it works. And, you know, I, I told people the best way to build a practice without advertising, is to pick one of your clients and call them on a Sunday night. Just tell them what's going on with the case. Just talk to them, find out what's happening. And it doesn't have to be Sunday, but just some night of the weekend. I did that still with two or three clients. And they are so blown away by the fact that I take this time for my personal time that I become their family lawyer and their friend's family lawyer and, you know, over the years, it's um, it's built. So, you know, we get, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 calls a day, um, or I do, just on that. And my other lawyers building the same practice. Do you remember your first uh, medical malpractice trial? I do. It was two weeks after I started practicing on my own. Well, it was a missed ectopic pregnancy that resulted in a hysterectomy. But what I remember about it was this is in 1980. This year, um, I'm in my 49th year. 40, I've been practicing for 48 year of practicing law, but I was getting ready for the trial and I got a call from the defense attorney. And he said to me, do you know who I am? I said, of course I do. And you're Mr. So-and-so. And, and I know his name, but I don't want to repeat it right now. But and he said, do you realize that you don't have a chance in this case? And I said, actually, I thought my chances were less than that. And, and he said, well, I'm going to make you an offer that you can't refuse. I said, okay. And he offered me $3,000. And I said, I have to refuse it. And he said, why? I said, I wouldn't know what to do with my share. And so we went to trial and I called as my first witness, his client. And I completely eviscerated this guy. I just completely blew him away. And that night I come home and it was before answering services. You know, we did have rotary phones, but before answering services and, and my phone was ringing off the hook and I picked up the phone and it's this lawyer. And I said, hello. And he goes, it's so-and-so. And he said, I just wanted to tell you, you did a really good job. I, was, I said, well, thanks. You know, I'll see you tomorrow. He said, no, I'm going to settle the case. I said, no, you don't. 
you're Mr. Defense Attorney, and I don't have a chance. He said, I'm going to offer you, and at that point, he offered me half of what I had demanded. And I said, we're not communicating. And so then he offered me the full amount. Well, I still had one other uh, defendant in the case, so I settled with him, went to trial against the other defendant. The lawyer representing that defendant was a complete jerk to me. I mean, just as condescending and horrible as can be. I won the case. It was a modest verdict. I won the case. The lawyer came up to me afterwards and said, I've never lost a case before. And he was so rude and so horrible to me. I said, get used to it. You're not that good. And that's how I started. <laughs> that's a great way to start your malpractice trial career, I would think. And you've gone on to, I mean, you do other kinds of cases, but you're known for specializing in malpractice cases. Why, why did you, doesn't Colorado have some difficult law on for malpractice? It has horrible caps or limitations on non-economic damages. There is no real limitation on economic loss. And the reason I did it was no one my age was doing medical malpractice work. There were some lawyers that were decades older that were doing it, but no one my age and when I was a public defender, I did a, a case where there was an insanity plea, and my cross-examination was horrible because I didn't understand the medicine. So I decided if I'm going to do this, I really needed to understand the medicine. And so I started, and in, in actually the first one of the first cases I got that came into me when I opened my practice was a man who called me and said, I got your name from and it were people I played golf with said, do you have time to see me? And uh, my calendar was completely wide open. I had nothing on it um, except the court appointments. And I said, sure, anytime. So he came in, he said his wife went into Fitzsimmons Hospital for a hysterectomy and she came out without her right leg. Are you interested in the case? I was sitting behind my desk and my desk still had the price ticket hanging from it. I leaned forward and without telling him, I pulled the price ticket off. And I said, I am. And so he goes on, he said, I'm thinking of two other lawyers. And he names the two biggest name trialers in Colorado. And he said, why should I hire you? And I looked at him, I said, you shouldn't. I wouldn't if I were you. I said, those other two lawyers have great reputations. They'll do a great job. But you wouldn't be here if you hadn't heard something about me that you thought was good. And the difference, what I can offer you that they can't offer you, is this case will mean more to me than it will mean to them. And I'll give you more personal service. He left. I called my mother and I said, someday I'll get a case like that. Three weeks later, he called me up and he said, you're hired. I said, why? He said, because you were honest with me. And that's how it all began. But I do cases all over the country because um, I have... Um, developed a reputation and people call and ask me for help. And um, I have, um, uh, it's worked, it's worked well. I mean, I, my, probably the case that made the biggest difference that I've done in my career was a case for a 80 year old woman who contracted AIDS from a tissue graft. So what she had was she had to have um, her knee replaced and um, when, I'm sorry, hip replaced. And when you have a hip replacement, they bore out your hip socket 
and they fill it with either a synthetic, which in this case was methyl methacrylate, or donor bone from a, uh, a cadaver. And she said, I don't want blood because she heard about AIDS. And this is in 1993. But in spite of that, they gave her donor bone. Well, bone is mostly blood. And she contracted AIDS. They had the CDC did this entire story. It was on the front page of the Denver Post. This woman contracts AIDS. The CDC had identified her. This is the first known case of this happening. And so her family called me and asked me to look into it. And I looked into it and I found out that the donor was a man who'd been murdered in Virginia. And he had been in prison. He had tattoos. He had a habit of sleeping with prostitutes. Um, he, um, and, and at that point, the MMWR, which was the publication for the CDC, had published something that said, don't accept blood or tissue from somebody's high risk. And then they listed, in addition to the homosexual community, people with tattoos, people with multiple sex partners, etc. So I found out that the tissue industry was only doing antibody testing, which will show a positive test, but only after six months after you've been exposed. And that wasn't effective, which is why screening was important. They weren't doing any of that. And as a result of my case, the Center for Disease Control the FDA, everybody changed the way that tissue banks were monitored, mandating extensive uh, background screens, social screens, et cetera, to make sure it was done. I was on the CBS News. I was on Dateline. Uh, and as a result of that, I was asked to go to other states because this man's tissue and organs were shipped all over the country. So it changed everything. Wow, that's... And there's a there was a part of that I, I think you described in the article I read about it, where you got some information from a, a whistleblower type of witness. Can you tell us about that? Um, he worked for the tissue bank, and he called, and he had his voice disguised, and he called several times to see if I was the real deal, and then he said he would meet me in the Memphis airport. I thought it was in a Grisham novel, right? So I go into the airport and he is meeting me in a room and I had arranged to have this videotape, but he was in a complete disguise. He had a hat on, he had a mustache, he had a beard, he had a trench coat. His voice was disguised. He said, if they find out I've done this, I will be killed. And he told me that they were doing no screening, that the whole purpose of this was to make money, even though they were called themselves a nonprofit. And the way they would hide that would be to put it in a building fund. And so I started looking into this, and there were points where I was concerned for my own life. I mean, there were there were threats, there were, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, but it was, it was pretty funny, too. I mean, parts of it that were as tragic as it was, I took the deposition of the decedent murder victim's mother, who told me that he hadn't been sleeping with prostitutes. I said, how do you know that? He said, well, we had breakfast every day and he would tell me who he slept with the night before. I said, you had a very special and unique relationship with your son. Oh my and gosh. then I took the deposition of his girlfriend, who 
This is in West Virginia, who had teeth, but only three of them, and was tattooed everywhere and couldn't complete his sentence. And I said to her, I understand that you are a topless dancer. And she said, not a topless dancer. I said, you're not a topless dancer? What are you? He, she said, Zotic. I said, Zotic, what's that? Do you mean exotic? She goes, yes. And she goes, what's the difference between a topless dancer and exotic dancer? And she went like this. She said, Pisces. She then got really mad at me and told me that her boyfriend was the CEO of Hell's Angels. And he was out in the parking lot. And this is all recorded. And I'm, re I'm videotaping it. I said, Hell's Angels has a CEO? At any rate, she walked out, but um, that was part and parcel of the discovery process, which is one of the things I love about this. I mean, you just have to enjoy it to the to the to the most best you can, make the most of it, and if there's humor someplace, find it. You know, don't don't shy away from it. The most important question of the interview, Jim, if if there's is a John Grisham uh, novel that will then become a movie about that case. Which actor would you select to play you in that film? I was thinking maybe a Mel Gibson, you know, and slightly younger Mel Gibson. What do you think, Rahul? <laughs> no, I wouldn't use Mel Gibson to take out my trash, but um, I would use you. I, I don't know who I would use. You know, I, I, I actually thought it would make a great screenplay because it was just unbelievable. Rahul, you got any ideas? I mean, there's just too many. There really would. Too many yeah. quality actors to, to play this Clooney, one. George Clooney, perhaps. Yeah, oh, George Clooney would be perfect. Perfect. Hey, Jim, I wanted to ask a question. Just kind of listening to you and listening to your story, it sounds like you came into the practice of law, both with that grit and hunger, but also with extreme confidence. How did you have that? And how did you maintain that throughout your practice? Well, I, I had confidence as somebody who had a lot of courtroom experience. I had cross-examined, you know, I had tried 20, 30, 40 jury trials. I mean, I was in trial as a public defender constantly. And so I gained that confidence. The confidence to cross-examine a doctor is a whole different, different world. And it's terrifying, quite frankly, because they go to medical school. I haven't. They learn the medicine. I haven't. So in my first case, when that when that guy hired me for his wife who lost her leg as a result of a hysterectomy, I went and met with a friend of mine who was my father's age, who was an OBGYN. I said, explain the medicine to me. And my, I mean, I, I was completely fogged over. I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, a light bulb went off. I said, these are just pipes, aren't they? When you're talking about the aorta, the main artery from the heart, and that branches into the common iliac, and then branches into the internal and to the external. Those are just pipes. And so what he did when there was a bleed is he tied off the wrong pipe, cutting the circulation to your leg. He said, that's absolutely right. And so what I've done, and I do it to this day, is I study each area of medicine, each issue, as detailed as I can. I just finished a brain surgery case where a tumor was removed from the fourth ventricle. It's considered to be the most, if not the most, but one of the most serious brain injuries you can do. 
I studied each facet of that, the neuromonitoring, to see what their standards were, the neurosurgery monitoring, the neurosurgery part to see what you should, what type of experience you, you must have, the anesthesia, what kind of anesthesia was right or wrong. So when I went into it, I knew what I was talking about, which, which leads me to something else. And, and I'll tell you, I think this is an important thing to share with people. Years ago, you know, I think it was 2009, I went to a convention in San Francisco. And at the time, I had broken my leg, so I was on crutches. And I was watching Pat Malone, who's also a member of Inner Circle, give a speech. And after his speech, he looked at me. I was probably 10 rows back. And he said, Jim, he goes, our next speaker just canceled. Will you speak? And I said, sure. On what? He said, whatever you want. So I got up, and the room was, was pretty full. And I said, the topic of my speech is why you should never believe your own expert. And people just, I mean, got very quiet. And I said, I said, and let me tell you why that is. People just rely too much on their expert. And their expert can be wrong one way or another. And one of the cases, probably one of the most important cases I ever did involved a 15-year-old who had heart surgery. And she came out of the surgery with a horrific brain injury and death. I sent that case to three separate heart surgeons. Each one of them said there was no case. And I didn't believe it. So I sent it to a fourth one. And the fourth one and I met and we spent a long time together and he said, there's a case. He was right, there was a case, but he had the wrong reason. And so I ended up hiring the head of heart surgery at a Boston hospital. And by the time I finished with it, well, while I was doing the case, the Denver Post announced that Children's Hospital in Denver would no longer be doing elective heart surgeries pending the outcome of my case. They were sending all of their surgeries to Boston Children's or Stanford. When my case was over, Children's hired my expert to redo their program. I never forgot that. And to this day, I have people tell me there's no case and I need to make sure for myself, I need to research the medicine, I use listservs. I find out if other people have done cases like this. And sometimes I agree, and more often I don't. But I can tell you that it has made a huge difference in my practice. One of my most important cases was a woman who came to see me. I had been practicing for probably 10 years. And she said, I have a case that has been turned down by, I think she said, 11 other law firms. And the law firm you were with turned this case down. Will you talk to me? And most people would say no, right? She brings in the file, it covers my entire conference table. I'm looking at it going, it would be easy to say no because there were thousands of pages of records. And I said, tell me why you think you have a case. So she tells me, and she tells me about this neurosurgeon she thinks is gonna support it. So I go to the neurosurgeon and I am just in a, fog about the medicine, trying to understand what you know ventricular peritoneal shunt is, which is just a drain for the brain when you get hydrocephalus, when you get swelling in the brain. But I said, I understand that that you will answer my some questions. He says, I'm not going to volunteer anything, but I will answer any specific question you have. And I thought to myself, oh, great. <laughs> I don't know enough medicine to ask the right questions. So I looked at him, I said, okay, what happened? And an hour and a half later, he finished. We did the case. We were successful, not only in winning a lot of money for this young kid who was a 
high quad, but who was mentally intact. But it also allowed him to go to college and get a PhD in math and become a full professor of math at the University of Washington. But it also, again, changed the way that heart surgery, uh, that uh, brain surgeries were done. Their brain surgeries done and brain after surgeries were cared for at the local hospitals and nationwide, I think. That's such a great topic and, and a good illustration of that. I, I find the same thing in doing the medical cases is that I don't rely or trust any expert to answer the critical questions. I want to know the answer myself based on as much data and literature and reading and understanding as I can. And then if they can give me credible reasons that I accept, I will eventually accept it, but I don't accept anything without understanding it. And I think that that's probably something you need to bring with you to, to do medical cases because even for people we hire as plaintiffs, the bias is to find reasons not to do it most much of the time, particularly if it's difficult. But that's such a good topic, and I'd love to. And we could spend a lot of time on that. But I'm I'm interested in going back to your philosophy and approach to cross examining doctors, and probably applies to the PI lawyers that are listening as well as the medical lawyers, because you often have to examine doctors. And even though we can bone up on the medicine and become very proficient, perhaps in the narrow subject of the cross, we're never going to match their level of knowledge and expertise, you know, or depth. What has been your approach to successfully cross-examining doctors? And what advice would you give newer lawyers who are trying to figure out maybe going into that first trial where they have to do that cross-examination, how to come out of that without bleeding to death? Well, I, I think that experience, the more cross-examinations you do, the better you're going to be. And I had lots of experience cross-examining witnesses as a public defender, including doctors on occasion. But my takeaway is there's no formula. None. You have a case and you have a doctor and the doctor has, is the defendant. Well, it's critical when you're doing the defendant's deposition to get a rule from the defendant, a rule of medicine. Okay. And let me tell you why I say that. In every malpractice case, the jury instruction across the nation is literally the same. The standard of care is what a reasonable doctor in the same or similar specialty would do under the same or similar circumstances. And that's given to every jury. And so in closing argument, I say, this is the instruction you've been given. And it's the same instruction given whether this is a brain surgery, whether it's a missed skin cancer, whether it's an infection or whatever. And that tells you how gives you a general framework. But our job, my job, in this trial was to tell you exactly what the standard is so you can compare the defendant's conduct to that standard and see whether they met that, that standard. And so what I do when I'm taking a defendant's deposition is I will say at some point, let's say it's a missed infection, what did the standard of care require that you do on August 15th, 2015, to rule out an infection? And the answer I got was, the standard required 
that if I suspected an infection, to do a tissue and fluid biopsy. Now we have a rule. Now we have a rule. Now the only issue is, did he suspect an infection? Should he have suspected an infection? And he had already admitted that each of the 11 times that he saw my client, infection was on his differential diagnosis. In, if you get a rule and you get it from the defendant's mouth, it can't be any better, right? So then you create a PowerPoint or you just give a closing and you say, in closing, you're saying, okay, this is the rule. And it comes from him and his experts agree to that. Because I asked him, do you agree with the defendant that if he suspects an infection, this is what's required? Yes. And everybody said that had that been done at that time, an infection would have diagnosed and she would not have lost her arm. So I had a plan. And you get as much as you can from the defendant. What did you do? How much time did you spend? It's case specific. If you're doing a radiology case, right? What are the two main reasons that radiologists miss findings? One is they read it too fast, and two is they're too focused. So there's literature on why radiologists miss findings. And that literature says that they should read the film before looking at the reason the film was ordered. In the case that I tried in, in, in Covington, uh, Kentucky, the radiologist missed an obvious brain bleed. And when I looked at the audit trail, it showed that he had spent exactly 72 seconds reading 153 diagnostic slides. And we could tell that because of the time he opened it on the audit trail to the time that he closed it and dictated his report. So I asked him without revealing it, how much time did you spend? He said, I spent seven minutes, 10 minutes. And then at trial, he knew that I had actually put together a PowerPoint because you can time the PowerPoint slides. That actually times out to 0 0.048 seconds, but because I'm a really good guy, I rounded it up to 0 0.05 seconds. And um, then I timed the slides, all 153 of them, and shot and played it, played it for the jury. And he goes, well, I understand you're, you're going to do that for the jury. But I actually spent 10 minutes doing this. I said, doctor, that's worse. You look at this for 10 minutes, the jury can see this. And they have no training. So you've got to, you've got to look at each case, each thing. I mean, you know, why are they there? What is it? What is the Achilles heel? What are they trying to cover up? And it's going to be something. It really is. There's going to be something. They've nuanced something so that they say something. They're going to say, I mean, you, you can bet in a meningitis case, they're going to say the symptoms were not significant enough to do this. And you can read somebody. I don't, I don't always take depositions anymore, but in a meningitis trial I did, the doctor said, well, his fever wasn't high enough. And at that point, I knew that this guy was going to go overboard, going to go crazy. I said, well, his fever was 106. How high did it need to be? At least 107, if not 108. And I said, and what else did he need? Well, he needed to have focal neurologic deficits. So paralyzed? Yes, at least paralyzed, right? And you can see how stupid that sounds and how ridiculous it sounds. And they take known risk factors or known whatever 
you know, known signs and symptoms, and they gloss over them. But you also have to have in mind whatever the defense is. And so typically the main defense that terrifies most lawyers, malpractice lawyers, is he used his judgment. Frightening, right? So I take that on head on. And I said to a doctor, I said, doctor, and this was a defendant, is it true that a physician can provide substandard medical care even if they claim they've used their very best judgment? Even if they've used their very best judgment? And he said, yes. I said, how, they can how can that happen? He said, well, if they use their judgment without doing the adequate tests, without getting an adequate history, without, with, with missing warning signs, and on and on. And so you want to go, okay, what are the warning signs? And, and you know, I, I ask open-ended questions. I say, tell me every single sign and symptom Mr. So-and-so had of an infection to the defendant. It's a horrible question for them because if they say none, they're toast. If they say any, they're toast. And quite frankly, I like toast. So, you know, it's it works. Do you ask open-ended questions at trial or are you talking about depositions? Sometimes both. It, it really depends. You don't want to ask an open-ended question for which there's a good answer to that will get, get them out of it. I mean, I took the course at NIDA where um, I forgot what the name of the lawyer was. He was famous. He came over the hill carrying the Ten Commandments of cross-examination. You know, never ask an open-ended question. But sometimes I do. And, you know, I, one time I was taking the, the deposition of the head of heart surgery at Texas Heart. He had replaced a bakey. And he walked into the room and he didn't even get sworn in. He said, he just starts talking. And he said, let me tell you why you don't have a case. And I said, all right, go for it, right? After being sworn in. And so when he got done, I said, did you see this record, a record that said this? He goes, no. I said, may I tell you why you're wrong? And he said, sure. And I started cross-examining him using the record. And he looked at me and he said, and this is videotape too, he said, you might be right. I said, doctor, it's not a might. I am right, aren't I? And he goes, you're right. And he just got up and left. It's a weakness. There will be a weakness. If you're on the right side of this, there will be a weakness. And you need to identify it. And, and the other thing you can do is that if you're working with a team of doctors taking care of somebody, you can more often than not create what I call a circular firing squad, where one doctor says, I, I told, I, I relayed this information and I asked the other people on the team, did you ever hear this? Absolutely not. I did that in this brain surgery case. Every single person claimed they did something that the other said didn't happen. When we got to the settlement conference, the mediator said, what's your theory? I said, it's a circular firing squad. And when I wasn't going, getting anywhere, I took them all out individually. You know, negotiated with them each separately and, and got a fabulous result. But, you know, the, the, the theory is, and you need to work with somebody who's done this. I mean, I help young lawyers. People call me. They tell me what's going on. And I say, all right, well, you have a soft tissue case. And you've got somebody who says their back's hurting. And so I, I, I took a deposition of a doctor. He said, well, I had, you know, something happen. I was gardening and I pulled a muscle. 
But every morning I do my exercises, and when I do them, I'm okay. I said, you've been doing this for, for decades? He goes, yes. That's terrific. You know, that shows there's soft tissue injury can be permanent. I mean, he makes he becomes my best damages witness. So I'm looking for something in everyone. And the question about, you know, what my approach is, is, you know, I've got a deposition uh, tomorrow of one of the huge team of people in Arizona who's caring for, for a guy, and she didn't do her job. I mean, you read Mark Mandel's case framing. She didn't do her job. She didn't do her homework. She glossed over things. You know, this is a Medicare patient. They want him out of the hospital because Medicare doesn't reimburse. You know, you're looking for every motive possible. And that's just the top of it. You've got to, you know, be as thorough as possible. We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com. And by Law Pods. Law Pods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. I feel like is is cross examined one of cross examination one of your favorite aspects of trial, or are there other parts that you you favor or truly enjoy? Well, I, I, I love cross examination, but you got to be careful when you do this, and not to bring it home. Because you know, I got into an argument with my wife, and she said, "Quit cross examining me," and I said, "I am not cross examining you." And would you please limit your response to just my question? <laughs> yeah, that it can be dangerous to mix our civilian and professional lives. But I do love cross-examination. I love the whole thing. I mean, I'll tell you, the single best place, in my opinion, to practice law in the United States is Oregon, state court. Because in Oregon state court, there are no expert disclosures. You don't know who the expert is or what they're going to say until they get on the witness stand. It's trial by ambush and both sides love it. Cases settle because on their merits, not based on how well you can beat up the other side. And it really is a test of a true, uh, true trial lawyer. It's my favorite place to go and try cases. Yeah, that's pretty extreme. I mean, there are a number of states where you don't have expert depositions. Massachusetts, New York would be two examples, but not even knowing who the experts are. is that a, So you can't do any prior background research into that person, right? At the beginning of the trial, the judge says, who are your witnesses? And the lawyers, as a routine, when it comes to their experts, mumble them so nobody can hear what the name is. And then typically, a lawyer will have a team in the courtroom when the expert is called, and they are doing frantic research on that witness to find out what they can find to do whatever with. But I can tell you that it is more terrifying for them, for the defense, than it is for a seasoned trial lawyer who has cross-examined people. Because in Oregon, if they're not taking depositions of defense experts or plaintiff's experts, they really don't have the experience that an out-of-state lawyer has coming in and doing this, or a lawyer from Oregon that does it in Washington, 
as well or in federal court, et cetera. Yeah. It sounds fun and also like something that would advantage somebody like you who's very skilled at, at cross-examination. I mean, one observation I have in a lot of the malpractice cases is that I often we we really demolish the, the defense experts at the deposition if we depose them, but they're able to troubleshoot and rehabilitate themselves to some extent by the time you get to trial because they're, you know, they're smart and they can figure out once they know what, where you're coming from, how to, and, and with medicine, there's always an answer to everything, isn't there? Whatever you say, there's always, they can always come up with some response that doesn't even, even in a wrong limb amputation, they have answers to that. So it's, if you give them the the questions in long enough in advance, they'll come up with a some kind of answer to it. Well, let me tell you what what I do with that. Okay, first of all, I take every deposition, I videotape every deposition, and now it's Zoom because all my depositions are by Zoom. Second of all, at each break, I ask the witness, "Have all of your answers been truthful? Is there any answer you need to change?" At the end of the deposition, I do the same thing. When I get the depositions, I sync them using trial director or whatever it is, so that if a witness changes their testimony, I can instantaneously put up, make a clip and put up a clip and show them saying the exact opposite thing. But when they change it, and, and, and I also say when I take a deposition, I say, you understand that if you change your testimony during this deposition or a trial, that change can be used can be considered by the jury to determine whether to believe anything you say at all. And they always say, I understand that. And I go, is that fair to you? And they will inevitably say yes. So you don't look like a jerk when you do it. So I, I think that's that's critical. But also, you, you, you know, you need to understand what are the main weaknesses I see of lawyers is they don't know how to defend where they're not using the right things to defend their case. So their expert's deposition is taken, and what the defense's goal is to say there's no standard of care, no definitive standard. So the questions are going to be, doctor, do you agree that there's a range of a standard of care? And I put my witnesses, if you believe there's a standard of care and you don't think there's a range, and your answer is, if you're talking about this case, the answer is no. Do you believe, doctor, that reasonable experts can disagree? Again, if you're talking about this case, the answer is no. Well, my doctor is a, is a board certified. He's head of this program, and he's whatever else. He's, he's, he's a reasonable doctor, and he disagrees. You're talking about the facts of this case, and there can be no disagreement. And that's why the rules of the road, which is Pat Malone's thing that I've taught at that seminar, is so important. And sometimes... Those are so hard and so steadfast, like medication errors, the five R's of medication. Have you heard of those? I have not. The five R's, right patient. Medication's got to be given to the right patient. It's got to be the right medication. It's got to be the right dose in the right route at the right time. And if there's a violation of any of those five R's, it is substandard care it is malpractice. And so if you're doing a case where the wrong dose of a drug like Lamictal, which is used for bipolar disorder, 
and they give the starting dose that's wrong, and they develop Stephen Johnson's syndrome, or even worse, toxic epidermal necrolysis, and go blind or lose all their skin, the wrong dose is not a judgment call. There's no exception. And so if you type in five R's on Google, you'll see that this is universal. And there's other rules that, that are just as strong for a, a variety of other things. So are you, you said you're, you've been doing this now for 41 years and you have a, a large successful practice. I think you have 12 or 13 lawyers now. Are you still having fun? Or are you hoping to spend more time skiing? It's 49 years. Oh. 41 mm -hmm. was a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> Am I still having fun? I love it. I just love it. You know, and sometimes we have a case screening committee in my office and, you know, we look at cases, but they, it's important that no matter what your gut reaction is, you need to verify it. You know, especially when there are significant consequences, you know, that the person is, has sustained. So your gut reaction may be that somebody declined a test so it's his fault and he's in an emergency room. But the record says declined, but we'll have an outpatient. But in order to know whether that's the right thing, you have to know what EMTALA is, the Emergency Medical Transfer Act, which says it's a federal law that mandates that when a patient presents for an emergency evaluation at an emergency room or any place in the hospital where he's seeking an emergency evaluation, that they have to do an adequate screen, which can require imaging before discharging. So if there's a consideration that a patient may have an acute arterial occlusion, which is a blood clot in an artery, and that's on their differential, and he needs that test, you don't say you can have it later because there's only six hours to correct it before you lose your leg. So you need to know, and, and if the person isn't given an AMA, AMA against medical advice form, doesn't sign the EMTALA form declining the test, saying that he's been advised of the consequence of not having it, and you have a case, and it's a good one. Yeah, that's important. I, I do think a lot of uh, patients who seek help from lawyers probably get turned away for reasons just like that. I'd say most of my cases have been turned down by other law firms. I'm not saying we don't get a lot of direct cases, but some of the biggest cases we've ever had have been turned down by the one that I was saying about was turned down by 11 lawyers. And that turned out to be an enormous, enormous case. But it's, it just requires really doing your due diligence, which is fun. I mean, a seasoned malpractice lawyer has a better view of medicine than any specialist because the specialists are tunnel vision and they don't see what's outside of what they're looking at often. And, and you've got to have a 30,000 foot view as well as you know, close up view. And um, it makes a world of difference. I've had doctors, you know, I, I had somebody call me and she said, telling me what happened to her. And um, I asked her a couple of questions. I said, you had a growth hormone secreting tumor, didn't you? Tuitary growth hormone secreting tumor. And it was this blank on the line. I said, I went to seven doctors. How'd you figure that out in seven minutes? Yeah. And I said, you get 
diagnose it until it was over two centimeters. She goes, you're right. I said, now you have diabetes and you have heart disease and you have all these. She goes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. I mean, we we see so many fact patterns. I think issue spotting like that becomes something trial lawyers be, are, are, are good at. But that's why if you use our entire, our entire group as a team, whatever that group is, the, the American Association of Justice, and run it by people, there's going to be somebody that's done one of these that'll be able to help. If folks, if folks have a, a case like that or one they're struggling with and they want to get in touch with you, how do they reach you? What's the best way to get in touch? Um, if you just type my name, Jim Leventhal, into Google, you'll find me. <laughs> the law firm is Leventhal. Puga Braley, Bruce Braley. Jim Puga is the past chair of uh, birth trauma. Bruce Braley is in trial right now in Iowa. He's a four-term, was a four-term U.S. congressman who unfortunately lost his Senate race in Iowa. And when he lost, I called him and asked him what he was doing. And he said he was interviewing with law firms on the East Coast. I said, no, you're not. I said, you're coming to Colorado. So he joined us. But it's 11th fellow Puga Braley in Denver. And you can find us that way. You can. We, we do know TV advertising. We don't, um, I had to be, you know, my arm twisted to even have a website. I think that's a good idea. Thanks for doing this, Jim, and keep up the great, great work. Looking forward to hearing about your next big result. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. I will tell you that I am to help anybody because I love it and I love helping young lawyers. I think it's important. You know, I think that's part of what we do. Thank you for having me on. It means the world to me. I have a lot of respect for both of you, for your firms and who you are and what you're doing. And, and because I think we're doing work that is so critical to patient safety and to people all over the country. So thanks. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.